Well, I want to tell you a story today. It's a true story, and I want to do it a little bit differently than maybe how we sometimes do a sermon. Uh, You're going to see one slide on the screen today. That's it. Uh, You're encouraged to turn in your Bibles and to follow along. It's going to be in the first chapters of 1 Samuel, chapters 1 to 3, and I encourage you, if you want to follow along in the text there, you can, or I would also encourage you to just listen to the narrative, because this morning I want to teach this uh, text and this theme of desperate prayer more from just a narrative perspective of walking through uh, some of the story that we find here in these three chapters. So this is a story about a young boy, and it's a young boy named Samuel. Samuel assisted Eli the priest at the tabernacle at Shiloh, and this was the place of worship for the people of Israel. Samuel did his daily duties in preparation of worship, and, and old Eli was almost blind by now and understandably dependent on this young lad that he now had in his care, and the one who had been dedicated uh, his life to serving the Lord. So serving under Eli's supervision, Samuel was learning the trade of both priest and prophet, and I would maybe argue mostly learning the trade of priest. As Scripture records the fact that in those days that messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. And these were the people that were charged with being the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel. But the people were languishing without an adequate prophetic ministry. As it says, no word of the Lord or ministry of any kind was really happening at that time. Just a lot of religious activity and ritual, or at least it seemed. Without an active prophetic ministry, history shows that the nation of Israel, and in fact any nation for that matter, wanders aimlessly and eventually walks the path of a very self-destructive behavior. And this truth became very evident. It was right after the time of Judges, not a particularly shining era of Israel's history, as even the closing statement at the very end of the book of Judges that records that portion of history summarizes it in this way. It says, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. That's the summary. So it was an in-between time, between the judges and the kings, two very different forms of leadership for Israel. Some would refer to this kind of a season as a neutral zone, having left what was before them and not yet having embraced what was yet to come. So into this gap, God calls Samuel. It was early in the morning hours that the incident happened, as the story records that the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And we see if we look to Exodus chapter 27, it records how this lamp of God, as it was referred to, was to be kept burning continually as it stood in the front of the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant. And the original priests, Aaron and his sons, kept this lamp burning all night long, every night, as it was a permanent law given to the people that was to be kept from generation to generation, as it's recorded in Exodus 27. So... When it says in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, that the lamp of God had not yet gone out, you can't help but notice the deep symbolism of that statement. And all that it represented for the spiritual condition of those who led in the tabernacle and the people of Israel as well. These were a people who were desperately in need of a fresh encounter with God. And this young boy, Samuel, is sitting there or is sleeping in the tabernacle right near the ark of God. And it's here that, again, the incident happened as he learned to hear the voice of God that night. 
Well, if you know the story, three times God called out to Samuel in an audible voice. Samuel! He thought it was Eli, so each time he went to Eli and uh, asked him about it. And the last time, Eli says, if you hear the voice again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Now, thankfully, this old priest finally got it. That maybe, just maybe, that's God speaking. Since we are actually in the tabernacle, the place of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God meets his people, it's kind of ironic. And sadly, it's not that uncommon today either. That people hang out in a place of worship and actually don't expect God to speak to them. In fact, they're even startled when he does, not sure what to do with that. It's interesting. Scripture records that Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. And how often, I wonder, does this happen also today, where people who serve the Lord for years actually do so without yet knowing Jesus? It seemed that Eli had come to that place, and this was the pattern that Samuel was now following. But God was gracious to Samuel. So after Eli's instructions, the boy goes back to bed, and then he hears God's voice for a third time. And this time Samuel is ready, and he finally says, Speak, your servant is listening. Well, God surely does speak to him. And it begins with a very strong judgment against Eli and his two scoundrel sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that Samuel eventually actually has to share with Eli because Eli insisted that he tell him what God said. And here after this incident, we see that it sets in motion a whole new season of prophetic ministry as the word of the Lord is alive again. As we continue to read the story, we see that Samuel became a great prophet of the Lord, leading the people of Israel between the time of the judges and before the time of kings. The nation seemed to drift without a moral conscience, no moral compass to give definition to righteousness. He was the one who anointed the first two kings, If you remember, first of all, Saul, the first king of Israel, and then secondly, David, the young boy who slayed Goliath and became the greatest king of Israel, against which all other kings were held up in comparison to. So this was the era where the people of Israel went from theocracy of a rule by God to a monarchy ruled by kings, something which Samuel Samuel reluctantly conceded and actually led the people in, even though he did not think it was wise. They went from one imperfect system to another imperfect system, from tribal confederations led by judges to one kingdom ruled by one king that only actually lasted a short period of time, only three kings to be exact, before the kingdom divided and the people seemed scattered and rebellious again. Samuel's the one who led the people in anointing the kings. Again, I think deep symbolism of pointing ahead to the, the ultimate anointed king, the Messiah, that would come later. He led the people of Israel again to understand and practice what it meant to walk in confession and repentance. Samuel is the one who confronted King Saul for his disobedience to God. And he said to him, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams is what he challenged Saul with. Samuel was a very unique blend of judge, priest, and prophet. He seemed to be one of the great Bible figures who seemed larger than life in many ways. He was a a critical figure in a very critical transitional time for the people of Israel. 
a man of God who heard and obeyed the voice of God. And at the end of chapter 3 in 1 Samuel, it is said of him, as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and everything that Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all of Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and gave messages to Samuel there at the tabernacle. And Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. So this is a great story, to be sure. But here's the thing that I want us to see in this story today. And a question that I want us to ask is, what made this possible? What made this kind of man, this kind of leader, this kind of fresh encounter from God possible for Samuel? That Samuel was able to be used by God for God's purposes in the ways that we see recorded in these chapters. You need to go back two chapters from 1 Samuel chapter 3 back to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. And this is where we see the desperate prayers of a praying mother. And her name is Hannah. This is what set Samuel's unique life and calling into motion. A man who allowed God to use him in remarkable ways. A man who experienced a fresh encounter with God and by walking in obedience was able to lead the people of Israel into fresh encounters as well. The first chapter of Samuel tells this story of a mother who practiced desperate prayer. So let's go back and let's discover the beginning of that story as recorded in these first two chapters. It begins like this. It says, There was a man named Elkanah who lived in the hills of Ephraim. He was a descendant of the old Zuf family. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Peninnah had children and Hannah did not. And you see, in those times, having children was seen as being very important because having children was counted as the blessing of God. And Hannah had not experienced and felt this blessing. So each year, Elkanah and his family would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at the tabernacle. You see, Shiloh had become the religious hub for the people of Israel as it was the first place where a permanent home was established for the tabernacle, this portable temple that had led the people of Israel through the wanderings in the wilderness. And this is where the people would go to worship. And the priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They were scoundrels, to say the least. That's how Scripture records them. Leading a corrupt and sleepy place of worship, if you could actually still call it that, under the blind eyes of their father. They're recorded in this way, in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, The sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. As people would come to the temple to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, they would steal the raw meat for themselves to barbecue. It says that the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. It also says that in addition to this, they were seducing the young women who were assisting in the temple. Not a very safe place to go. On the day that Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would, he would give portions of it to Peninnah and each of her children, as was the custom. But he also gave Hannah a special portion because he loved her very much, even though the Lord had given her no children. But it records that Peninnah made fun of Hannah because the Lord had closed her womb. And year after year, it was the same. Peninnah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle, and Hannah would finally be reduced to tears and not even eat. What's the matter, Elkanah would say. Why aren't you eating? As the good husband comes alongside his wife. 
Why be so sad just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons? (laughs) Not a great thing to say. I mean, if this isn't a window into the human male psyche and ego, (laughs) even for a godly man like Elkanah. But I digress. Let's keep reading. Once they were at Shiloh, Hannah went over to the tabernacle after supper to pray to the Lord. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow. She says, Lord, O Lord Almighty, if you will look down upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and I will give him completely, unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli was watching her, the priest. Seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking and challenged her on that, in fact. Oh no, she replied, I'm not drunk, but I am very sad and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Please don't think that I'm a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. I mean, think about it. When was the last time that someone watched you pray so fervently and passionately that they might have thought you were drunk? I mean, here was a woman who was praying intently, deeply, desperately. In that case, Eli said, cheer up. May, God, may the God of Israel grant, your, grant you the request that you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. And then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. And then it records how the next day, the entire family got up early in the morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her request, and in due time she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, which means heard by God. For she said, I asked the Lord for him. The next year, Elkanah, Peninnah, and their children went on to their annual trip to offer a sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh. But Hannah did not go. She told her husband, wait until the baby is weaned, and then I will take him to the tabernacle and leave him there with the Lord permanently. Whatever you think is best, Elkanah agreed. Stay here for now, and may the Lord help you keep your promise. So she stayed home and nursed the baby. When the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle at Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice and half a bushel of flour and some wine. And after sacrificing the bull, they took the child to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I'm the woman that stood here before you several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this child, and he has given me this request. And now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worship the Lord there, it says. One commentator summarizes this exchange in this way. He says, Eli represents the corrupt and apostate leadership of the priesthood, and Hannah, the simple faith that issues from suffering and pain. And in one of the most sobering and remarkable scenes of devotion that we see in all of Scripture, we see how Hannah finds it possible to return to God what was so graciously given to her. Having come to God with nothing, nothing, she now returns to Shiloh to give back that which means everything to her. Hannah's spiritual sensitivity and her desperate prayer are the anvil that God uses to hammer out his will for her and her family and the impact that this young boy will have on God's people and plan. 
As we're in this series called Fresh Encounters, and the role that prayer plays in positioning our lives in such a way that the power of God can work, in such a way that is like a boat and its sails positioning themselves or positioning such in a way that God, through his power and through his spirit, can capture the sails and move that ship. This image of how we might position our own lives in such a way through prayer that God can work. Desperate prayer is one of those positions. But as I've been reflecting on this idea of desperate prayer and this posture of desperate prayer, what strikes me is that it's typically not something that we seek after. It's typically something that finds us. And I think that desperate prayer is often right there alongside a complete inability to pray. We see record of that in Romans chapter 8 where it talks about this truth where at times the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness and even prays, prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And if we're followers of Christ, I can say with confidence that each one of us have found ourselves at some point in life in some posture of desperate prayer. We've all experienced it, at least to some extent. We've had desperate prayer find us at a moment of crisis when we did not expect or some ongoing suffering that we simply cannot get past. And I know when I come into a room like this and just knowing some of the lives that are here, I know that many of you have done graduate-level work when it comes to desperate prayer. Whether it's terminal illness, the loss of a child, praying for a wayward son or daughter, job loss, a devastated relationship, or any other uh, ongoing or sudden tragedy or suffering that we experience in our lives. And you may feel like, well, you know, I don't need a sermon on desperate prayer uh, because I've been living that far too long myself. But I hope and I pray that today could also be an encouragement to you. My intent isn't to give you a formula for desperate prayer because, as I said, it's often not something that we seek or go after or plan for. It's something that comes and finds us in the circumstances of our lives. And it's a posture we find ourselves in. And so for today, I want to encourage you, at least with this idea that we can lift our eyes and and see that this type of prayer is found throughout the course of history. And see that this type of prayer is found in the lives of people that we read about in Scripture. People like Hannah and so many other people who experienced that as well. And to encourage you in the fact that you are not alone in your seasons and times of desperate prayer. And in fact, that our Lord Jesus knows and hears your prayers. And he knows intimately even what it means to be in desperate prayer. But as I've reflected on the story of Hannah, as well as walked alongside people in desperate prayer, there are a few things that to me feel that are definitely connected when it comes to this kind of prayer. First of all, suffering seems that desperate prayer and suffering go hand in hand. You can't help but see the connection between Hannah's suffering and her desperate and effective prayer. She had every reason to be bitter, you would think, at least from a human perspective. She was incapable of bearing children. She had Penina's relentless ridicule as well as the shame of the community of not being able to have children. You had Elkanah, the husband, who was unable to help her, and in fact, I think at times made it worse. You had Eli who misunderstood her motives and even falsely accused her. 
And what's so interesting is rather than having these circumstances drive her to a being emotional wreck, she let her circumstances drive her to desperate prayer. And it was, in fact, this pain and suffering that grew within her an unmistakable faith that led her to pray in this way. She leveraged her suffering in prayer as it, is now, as it now exemplified the persistent and tenacious faith that is born out of pain and suffering. But not only is there suffering, but this kind of prayer also seems to lead us to surrender. And we might say that surrender is even required. You might say that desperate prayer is prayer where we have reached a place of full surrender, as it seems that little happens until you get past full surrender. But if you've been there, you know that it comes at a cost. And it doesn't always mean that we'll get the answer to our prayer in the way that we want, because surrender means giving up our definition of what is fair and right, and giving up our definition of what the answer will be, and even giving up our definition of timing. As we kneel before God, we simply surrender to the one that we trust more than the pain or obstacles that we see and feel in front of us and all around us. And it's that healthy fear of God that sees him as holy and sovereign and good. Because you see, the fear of God is the antidote to every other kind of fear. And Hannah came to a place of seeking God's will and God's kingdom more than her ideal answer. A promise to return this child to kingdom work. Promising something that she could never do unless she had come to full surrender. And it seems that desperate prayer takes us there. Again, surrender means that we have let go of dictating our outcome, our timing, and to have willingly submitted to God's outcome. And to pray that prayer of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray Our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes that's a really hard and difficult and challenging thing to pray. You know, God always answers our prayers. It's just not always in the ways and in the timings that we like. It seems to me, as I've lived my own experiences of desperate prayer at times and walked with others who know this more intimately than I ever will, and even as we look at this text and the example of Hannah, that desperate prayer also seems to come in waves and in layers. Maybe not as consistent as waves, but just as relentless at times. And layers, layers that you continue to unpack and kind of peel off and you think that you finally got to the core, you finally hit the bottom, and then there's a whole nother layer, a whole nother depth that you haven't explored or discovered yet. Layers of pain and the challenge of whatever you're experiencing and going through. I mean, just think of Hannah's second wave of desperate prayer. After God granted her the cry of her heart and she had this baby, now she has to follow through with her commitment her promise. I mean, think about that for a minute. If you think she prayed fervently and desperately for a child, can you imagine how she prayed after she gave up that child at Shiloh? She drops off this baby into a very corrupt religious system, trusting in God more than fearing man. I would venture to say that her prayer intensified. So there's layers to it. You know that. We hit one level and then God takes us deeper. 
And it comes to new places of surrender, new places of, of God's will, Lord, your will, not my will be done. And it records that after Samuel was weaned, that she goes back to Shiloh, she sees Eli again, and she says, I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. And now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worship the Lord there. Wow. I don't know about you, but I, I can't imagine that. The willingness to give up this most precious gift in her life. What causes or allows someone to do that? to pray that kind of prayer, to actually walk it out with that kind of faith and that kind of action, to pray the prayer that you see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is this incredible prayer of praise that she prays to God the Father. And I'll just read the first couple of verses where she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. Now I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. What allows someone like Hannah to pray a prayer like that? You know, there's so much about this story, this narrative, that also points ahead to Jesus. Miraculous birth narrative, first of all, to begin with. It's amazing how many times God uses a difficult and unusual birth narrative for something truly significant to happen in his grand narrative, in his large story of the whole of the gospel. We see it in Hannah and Samuel. We see it in Sarah and Isaac, Elizabeth and John, Mary and Jesus, just to name a few. And Jesus, too, is this miraculous birth for a purpose that would change the world. But as we read the gospels, we also see that Jesus, too, entered into desperate prayer on that night in the olive grove before his crucifixion. Scripture records Jesus' words In this way, it says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. And he prayed with such intensity that Luke records it in this way. He says that he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. But Jesus too, even in his suffering, also surrendered to the will of the Father, saying, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. What an amazing picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in desperate prayer and declaring that God, Heavenly Father, your will is more important. Your will is more significant. Let your will be done, not mine. And with that, Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. He was able to see past the pain and the suffering to the Father and what was on the other side. The bigger picture of eternity, of God's purposes, and God's kingdom. Many of us know that our intimacy with God often hits a new level in times of pain and suffering. They're not valleys that we choose or go seeking after. Again, they are places and valleys that come seeking us. But to allow even those instances to be a way of positioning our lives in such a way that God could do a new work, that we might experience a fresh encounter with the living God. Because you see, desperate prayer is holding truth and promise that we do not fully see or understand, but it's walking in faith. And maybe if nothing else today, that you would know that in desperate prayer that you are in good company, that you're in the pattern and the presence of Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your great narrative, the story of Scripture, the gospel story, and these incredible testimonies of faith and of your faithfulness. And Lord, we, we know that um, we come to you with all kinds of requests and asks and at times in desperation of just crying out to you in the pain and anguish of things that we've experienced, the things that have come our way. And Lord, we just want to acknowledge today that we don't always um, submit in the ways that we are called to, to surrender to your will, not our will. That we often have our own outcomes in mind, our own timing in mind. And Lord, I pray that you would help to give us increased faith. Give us the faith of Hannah. And even though she had a huge part of her prayer answered, Lord, the suffering that she probably continued in of releasing a child to a corrupt system for a lifetime and to watch him from a distance as he grew up as a godly man, leading the people of Israel in all kinds of ways, but never quite having the kind of intimacy that she probably desired. And Lord, we know that you call us to pick up our cross and follow you, and that is a daily thing. And Lord, when we come to those places of desperate prayer, I pray, Father, for those fresh encounters. I pray, Lord, for those who are in that season of desperate prayer right now, that you would give a fresh encounter of your Holy Spirit. That you would help us to see past the circumstances that we're in. Help us to see past the difficulties or the obstacles that are right in front of us. And help us to see the face of God. Help us to see you, Lord Jesus. Help us to see your faithfulness through the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you. That by your spirit and by the cross, you have given us hope, you've given us strength, and you've given us future. And so, Lord, we worship you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.